We're in our ongoing study in the book of Nehemiah. We're, uh, fini- we will, I think, finish chapter 6 today. And uh, the approach that I'm taking in our study of the book of Nehemiah uh, is, among other things we're doing, but the primary focus I'm taking is what do we learn about leadership here? Because, uh, and this, that is not original with me. There are many, many uh, books and uh, um, commentaries out there that take that approach. A popular one that I, I've mentioned this several times is Chuck Swindoll's uh, book, Hand Me Another Brick, which is his study on Nehemiah, but through the, uh, the filter of leader. And then he folks at the end of the book, 12 Leadership Principles. And I'll draw on a few of those at the end when we're, we're done with our book. But in Chapter 6, we are looking at the second wave of opposition to Nehemiah and the builders of the wall. Uh, now, if this were a quiz day, I would ask Dick out a sheet of paper and answer a couple questions. But since it's not, and I don't have the authority to do that until Fred gives me that authority, uh, remember his pr- three primary enemies are Sanballat, who is governor of Samaria to the north, um, Tobias, uh, who is the, sort of a, an official, we're not quite sure he's the governor, of the Ammonites to the east, and then Geshem, who is the leader of the nomadic Arab tribes to the south. There are others, but they're the three primary ones. And they have been doing everything they possibly can to thwart Nehemiah's leadership in doing what God wants him to do, which is rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Last week, we dealt in chapter 6, is again, this is the second wave of opposition. We looked first at their attempt to get him to to compromise with them. Secondly, they issued uh, what in the 21st century we call fake news, which was a series of false reports about Nehemiah, really slandering his character, accusing him of sedition, of trying to lead a rebellion against the king of Persia, and so on, which is, of course, not true. Now, the third one, we uh, just started last week and just got into it. And I you know, put out there a really cliffhanger kind of comment that none of you remember. But if you want to find out what happens, come back next week. But the, the issue here is it would have perhaps been something that Nehemiah might have considered. But we read in verse, I'm picking up now in verse 10. I'll go over some of this, even though we got this first couple of verses done. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Michalabah, who was confined to his home, the assumption is two things. Number one, Shemaiah is probably a priest, although we're not absolutely sure of that. And number two, in some sense, he's some kind of an invalid. He's either sick, he has the flu, he has a cold, or I'm being a little funny there, but you know we just don't know. The scripture is silent here. So he goes to him. He sits down with him. They have some refreshments. Again, I'm making that up, but that would have probably been the case. And he says, now this is Shemaiah speaking, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. Let me stop right there. That is a legitimate in terms of the law, a legitimate use of the temple. It's what's called in in Exodus chapter 21, verse 13, 14, and following, the altar of of refuge, the altar of asylum. That if someone is out to take your life or out to harm you, you can run into the temple and really literally grab a hold of the altar and claim solace there. So, Shemaiah is using something in the law, but as you're going to find out in just a minute, it's to trick Nehemiah. So he's using something legitimate in what I just said in the last three sentences. Are you with me? Okay, two of you are with me, right? But, but okay, I mean, there, it, it's, a legitimate, it's a legitimate request. It is a legitimate circumstance because people do want to kill Nehemiah. So he continues, they are coming to kill you at night. Verse 11, how does Nehemiah respond to this? But I said, should such a man as I run away, what man as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Now, before we read verse 12, let me stop there again. Obviously, the Lord is with Nehemiah. The Lord is giving him insight and wisdom. 
But he's saying something that a good leader should always say. The cause comes before me. The mission is more important than me. And so he, he is saying, if I would do this, what message would that send to everyone else building the wall? Our leader is a coward. Our leader has lost the focus on the mission. And if our leader has, so are we. So, I mean, it, this is a shrewd, and as you, as you find out in, a, in about two more verses, Ten Ballot and Tobiah, they hatched this plan. It's a conspiracy. They knew what they were trying to do, but it was shrewd. They're using something sourced in the law. They're using something that could be considered legitimate, but it is to thwart the plan to finish building the wall by getting the leader humiliated, getting the leader to be positioned as no courage, no fortitude. Okay, we're going to give up. So, I mean, it's really shrewd in terms of the part of the enemies. But Nehemiah is doing what he really should do. I'm the leader. I must have the courage and fortitude to finish the mission. I am not as important as finishing the mission. And so, then he goes on, verse 12, And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. Now, I'm going to be very blunt here. We do not know exactly how he figured that out. This is what I think. And I'm, this isn't terribly insightful. But Nehemiah is very much in tune with the Lord, as you know. I and mean, we've been seeing that throughout these remarkable chapters. And um, the, the, Lord, the Lord gives us insight, gives us discernment, gives us understanding, gives us wisdom. They're all words in the Proverbs that are synonyms for wisdom. And so I believe the Lord gave this insight to him. And, and in addition, Nehemiah is also very insightful and very shrewd. He's going to conclude, this isn't genuine. This isn't genuine. So intuitively, he distrusts what Shemaiah has said. And then he goes on, I mean, in the, the rest of the verse. But he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sinbalat had hired him. So he has found out that piece of information. They hired him. They paid him off. Verse 13, for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. So let's just talk about something here that to me stands out. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid. Let's approach this from a doctrinal vantage point. Tobiah and Sanballat are trying to put Nehemiah in a position where his fear trumps his, maybe I shouldn't say trump, but where his fear overcomes his faith. They have seen a man in all of these different series of, of oppositions where they're trying to stop the wall from being built. They've seen a man of tremendous faith in God, of tremendous trust and confidence in God, that he is where God wants him, and he is doing what God wants him to do. And so there, and this is, it's masterful. And Nehemiah has this insight. They want me to be afraid. They want my fear to overcome my faith. And I'm not going to let that happen. Now, there's a lot we could do with that. But in, in our lives, as we live our lives and walk our walk and just live in this broken world, doing life, it is easy for fear to overcome our faith, isn't it? To be afraid. To be afraid of something. And I'm not, I'm not talking about 
you know, driving 100 miles an hour and you're afraid you're going to crash. That's lunacy. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just doing life. The fear that comes when you hear the doctor say something that means you're very sick or you've got cancer or something like that, or you have a loved one who is killed or hurt in an automobile accident, or you get into a financial situation. And, I mean, all of a sudden, fear, fear just overcomes faith. And we kind of, we kind of develop that attitude, God's left me in this one. I'm alone in this one. Is that right? No. No. But listen, I've said this before, and I think we might do that when we're done with Nehemiah. Maybe we'll just study a couple of the Psalms. Because I've taught in one of my other classes, we we do an Old Testament book, a New Testament book, then ten Psalms. And we do an Old Testament book, New Testament book, and ten more Psalms. So we just finished, uh, about three or four weeks ago, the 85th Psalm. So we've done 85 of the Psalms. So, uh, you know, we're just a little over halfway, because there are 150 Psalms in the Psalter. But the reason I'm saying all that, that, what I just said isn't even important. But that's the reason I just came out of a study of some of the Psalms. And when you read the Psalms, and some of the Psalms we know who wrote them, some we don't, but it is not unusual for the psalmist to be talking about a particular personal crisis or a crisis of the nation that they're in or they're being under siege from Sennacherib who's trying to conquer Jerusalem or something like that. And that you, you see initially in their verses, they're afraid. And they're lamenting. Do you know what lament means? If you're lamenting something, you're, you're, you're feeling really bad about it, you're complaining about it, you're, you're sad that you're in this situation, and you, he, he will say to God, he will say this to God, why have you abandoned me? That's a psalmist speaking to God. You don't hear my prayers. When I pray to you and ask you, there's silence from heaven. I mean, that's why I love to teach and read the psalms in my own personal life. Because the psalmist is being remarkably transparent with God. And there are times when he says to God, I am so angry with you, God. I've been paraphrasing some of his comments. But you see this. But every psalm, every single one, there's no exception, of these lament psalms, the psalmist comes back and remembers God's faithfulness. Sometimes brings up the covenantal relationship with Abraham. Almost always brings up the exodus from Egypt. Almost always brings up the wilderness wonders and God's faithfulness. Brings up the conquest into Joshua and God's faithfulness. And his conclusion is, you were faithful in the past. You will be faithful now. That, no, it is it, let me put it this way. Is it understandable that you will lament and be angry and hurl even accusations at God? That's life. And I, and I really do believe it. I can say this with the authority of Scripture. God understands that. But God wants us to circle around and come back to the premise I have been faithful to you in the past. I will be faithful to you now. I'm not going to leave you. So that, let me take this one more step. Why sometimes does it sound like, as we pray, that there's brass up there and our prayers are just bouncing off the brass and they're not going anywhere? Why do we sometimes have the perception and maybe even reach a conclusion. God's silent. He is not hearing me. Why does sometimes God delay? Yeah, it's time. Just like when Jesus went to go uh, raise Lazarus from the dead, he waited, even though common sense was like, hurry up and get over there and raise him from the dead. He waited for God's glory. And nobody wrote a book yet that kind of explains God's time perfectly. <laughs> Nobody is going to be able to write a book like that. Just if, if they are, the only one that could write a book like that is God. But I mean that's that's a that's a really good comment, uh, Matt. It, it got, God delays because there's something else greater that's going to happen. And as we wait, 
we're more refined, we're, we're stronger, we're going to be more tempered for what we're going to go through next. That's my that, part of the I think point. that's part of, part of what God's doing here. And it's not just fear, it's <clears throat> sometimes we worry about something, which is, you know, like a, 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 a small fear. No. Sometimes an enormous fear, anxiety. You know, right. no, I, that's no, that's real. I mean, that's real stuff. That's real world stuff. Like we think we can handle it. Or somehow we're going to have to figure this out. But God will come through with this, yeah. and, uh, and 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 it turn out better than we even expect. It sometimes it can. It sometimes it can. I had uh, uh, Fred was in my church this Sunday, so he's heard me say this. But not this past Friday, but the Friday before. I had a really interesting day. My Chrysler, it's a 2002 Chrysler. I love that car. I love that car. I bought it when I retired. Uh, it was the car I had as president. And then my successor didn't want the car, so I asked if I could buy it, and I bought it from the school. And, I mean, it was really it was a great car. It had it, it, you know, a 2002 Chrysler Concord. It has an enormous trunk. It's like a truck. And I hauled some. I just loved the car. Well, it died. I mean, it died. And the guy who looked at it, he said, Jim, I can fix this, but it's going to cost. And so, you know, here's where wisdom kicks in. And so I said, okay. And that very same morning, my computer died. And, you know, that you kind of live. I live with that thing. And so, I mean, it's just one of those things. You just, it's life. It's going to happen. These are natural things. But it, it just showed me again, each one of those situations, God brought us through that. Very simple, mundane things of life. A car, a computer breaking down. But how the Lord took care of us in that time. Because where we were, uh, when my car, so we were way out west. We were way southwest. And my wife, who has far, far more faith than I do, just said, honey, the Lord's going to take care of us. And, you know, I'm a man. Any problem, I'm on a mission to fix the problem. You can't identify with that, can you? No, I don't need God in this one. I'll just fix it. You know, that's kind of my approach. And so I did the same thing with my computer. She says, honey, your computer, I bought that computer from Grace. That's an old Hewlett-Packard computer. A laptop that's this long and this wide. When was the last time you sent a laptop like that? But I love it. So, you know, anyway. They're little mundane, ridiculous examples, but that's life. And every single mini little tiny crisis that you face doing life, because you're not absolved from this just because you know the Lord, but you have a resource that the person who doesn't know the Lord has. You have the Lord Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. And all of those things you start to learn, learn through those. God's provisions and care are always adequate. He never, ever leaves us alone. And so Nehemiah was in that kind of a situation. I, this is, to me, this is one of the most significant of the attempts to thwart the plan to rebuild the wall. Make Nehemiah afraid. Get him into a situation where he is so anxiety-ridden that he does something that demonstrates lack of faith, runs into the temple, and claims altar of asylum according to Exodus 21. And everybody sees the leader do that? What's going to happen to the work? It's going to stop. But Nehemiah had this fantastic insight, and then God somehow revealed it to him, or maybe he heard it. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way, that he should give me a bad name in order to stop me. Remember Tobiah. What is verse 14? It's another prayer. This is Nehemiah praying. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Now that's new information. We're not quite sure who she is. We don't know exactly all those details. This is now you, we've talked about this before. This is an imprecatory prayer. Remember that great word? What, what's that mean? <laughs> Yeah, I'll write it up here. You weren't here when we went over. No, I so I'll ask everyone in the room to give me a definition. No, I won't. That would be terrible. This is, and I, listen, don't worry if you, you don't know that word. It, but this, it, it is what is called an imprecatory prayer. 
You're praying for God to mete out his justice and his vengeance. You're not going to do it. God's going to do it. Is that kind of like the Yiddish word, Yishri? <laughs> yeah, right. You kind of pray him for some, uh, God punish him. Well, in a, in a way, Woody, that's right. Yeah. God, you take care of them. Because of what they're doing. That's right. Yeah. It, God, God says in, in a variety of different scriptures, both Old and New Testament, both in terms of some of the narratives as well as in the teaching parts of the Bible, I, vengeance is mine. I'm, I'm going to take care of it. It's kind of a payback prayer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, that. yes, because... but. It's not out of, this is really important too, it, it isn't out of your personal hatred and vengeance. It's you're saying, God, I can't handle this. That's unjust, and it's unfair what they're doing. They are trying to thwart your work, but you handle them. I'm not going to do that. You handle them. And so it's a prayer for God's justice. It's a prayer for God's vengeance. And whenever God executes his justice or executes his vengeance, it's never a temper tantrum of the deity. It's always done perfectly. Because God's attributes are always exercised in perfection. Now that sentence, do you understand what I mean by that sentence? God's attributes are always exercised in perfection. He never does something that violates one of his other attributes. God has instant replay, so he knows who who, who committed it first. So you don't have to retaliate. Yeah, I mean that's a, he 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 takes care of these things. Now, this does not rule out the importance of self defense and things like that. that's not what we're talking about here. And again, this is in the Psalms. Uh, that actually that word imprecatory comes from a study of the Psalms because so often the psalmist will ask God, you take care of those people. They've laid a siege against Jerusalem and Hezekiah's king. They laid a siege against Jerusalem and Sennacherib. God, you take care of them. What did God do? The next morning he took care of them and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers lay dead on the battlefield. Hezekiah's armies didn't slay them. God did so, I mean, sometimes you have these dramatic examples of God acting. Other times, you don't. And sometimes, we're going to have to wait until eternity to see God carry out his holy vengeance. Sometimes we may not see it. All right. Question. Yeah, please. So, uh, marry that with Jesus' telling us to turn the other cheek. Is, is that somewhat related to not retaliate because there's just this understanding that. Yes, uh, it, that's really a good uh, a, a good question relating to the words of Jesus. Um, if I can, can I take about a minute or two to answer? Because here's a great question. That's a big question. Would that be all right if I did that? Sure. Yeah. He's what what Glenn is referring to is in the Sermon on the Mount when when Jesus is really. Helping those who are hearing him preach this great sermon, you are you are used to and you understand the principle of God's justice, which is talionic justice. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If you do something that violates God's ethical standards, you are accountable for that. And so God says, Israel, I want you to make your laws based on that principle. And in terms of how you how you meet out justice, it's based on that principle. However, by the first century, that wonderful principle of justice had turned into a justification for personal vengeance. And it could be lots of different circumstances. So Jesus is using an extreme hyperbolic, what hyperbolic means, exaggerated, exaggerated example to drive home the point. And he uses a couple examples. A Roman soldier comes up to you, you're in occupied territory, so they could do that. Jew, carry my pack from that mile marker to that mile marker. What does Jesus say? What's your response? Go the extra mile. You look at that Roman officer and say, 
Sir, I would be delighted to do that. And in addition, I'll carry it one extra mile. And so that Roman soldier falls off his horse and you're telling him about the Messiah. That's a joke. But, I mean, that's the point. So instead of having a heart of vengeance to that Roman soldier, you're in occupied territory, he has the right to do that, you say, okay, I'll do it. And then he takes it another extreme, and this is the one. Somebody, and the, the language the Lord Jesus uses is not he takes his fish and breaks your jaw, but it's a slap of offense. He slaps you in a public way, offending you. What do you do? Duke it out? Jesus says, instead of revenge dominating your response to people, you say, okay, slap me in the other seat too. You're not going to get me into a situation where I'm going to carry out personal vengeance and embarrass you, Lord. And so Jesus is using an extreme example. Don't let revenge be the substitute for forgiveness. Jim, all of this requires just an abiding in him daily and hourly and just thinking about the things that... Absolutely. I I mean, and this is what Nehemiah did here, what the Lord Jesus is saying in, in, in terms of Glenn's question, that it is a supernatural... Un, unhuman, unprecedented response in situations. Every morning, Peggy and I read a little devotional, and maybe some of you use this too, but this morning's devotional was on a, uh, a man uh, who um, his wife was killed in an automobile accident, and it was a firefighter who killed her. He had, been, he had been up for 27, 28 hours or something like that, was driving home, and he fell asleep. And he, the accident then that he caused because he fell asleep, veered over the meal strip, killed this man's wife. The man whose wife was killed was a pastor. And the pastor, in, in, in the little devotion of the pastor, it says the pastor just reflected, okay, Lord, what do I do? He has taken the life of my wife. What do I do? Do I seek vengeance? Or would you want me to practice forgiveness? Now, because it's in a Christian devotional, you know what he did. <laughs> but he, he did. He went to this, because they arrested him. They were going to charge him with uh, manslaughter. And he just said, no, listen, um, I understand what he was doing. And my faith in God is such that I cannot, I cannot allow personal vengeance to rule in my heart right now. And so he went to this man said to him that he forgives him, and he, they became very good friends. Isn't that amazing? That is an amazing story. That is so counterintuitive to everything the way humans. But it's also, do you remember, this would have been before Christmas, in Dallas, Texas, that courtroom yes. Yes. of that police woman who, it's really quite bizarre, but she killed a man in his apartment. She thought she was in her apartment and all of that. And I I remember seeing that, and then there there were some explanations. We found a little more about that family. But the brother of the man she shot, in his testimony, he talked about Jesus Christ, he talked about forgiveness. And do you remember what he asked the judge? May I get out of my chair and go down and give her a hug? And then, subsequent to that, a couple of days later, we learned, and maybe saw this too, but the judge, who was the judge of, of that case, uh, she went and spent time with the family of the, the young man who was killed. She got back into the courtroom before the sentencing, and she gave this police officer a copy of her Bible and said, read John 3.16, it'll change your life. Now, when I read those two, then I thought, this, this is so out of sync with everything we see in the United States right now. But it demonstrates what you're saying, a supernatural response to very common things in life. And that's what Jesus is saying in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what Nehemiah is exhibiting here. It is reasonable for him to be afraid. But he's not going to allow his anxiety and his fear to overcome his faith. God wants me doing this. 
This is God's work. I'm going to trust God to take care of me and meet the needs we have. Tremendous faith. A leader, and I'm talking about a Christian leader, a leader must have unmitigated, unadulterated faith and trust in God, that God has him where or her where he wants him or her. Now, you have to really understand who said this and why he said it. But Jim Elliott, who was martyred by the Huarani Huarani Indians in Ecuador in 1957, wasn't it? Anyway, he, he had a journal, and his wife Elizabeth published his journal after he died, after he was martyred. And one of the statements in his journal, it struck me when I read it years ago, you are immortal until God's done with you. And you have to think about that. You were immortal until God done with you. He was in his, I think he was in his 20s. He was in his late 20s. And, and the results of that martyrdom were absolutely, the, the incredible results. That entire tribe came to know Jesus Christ. Do you know how they came to know Jesus Christ? Elizabeth, his wife, and one of her children, and the wife of another one of the five killed, went down and lived among those Indians and led them all to Christ. And the number of missionaries, the number of people that would commit themselves to the Lord's work, it's exponentially increased because of the martyrdom of those five. And so if you're doing what you know the Lord wants you to do, whatever that vocationally means, but if you're doing what the Lord wants you to do, trust him. Lead your people with that confidence. And Nehemiah, did, this was, to me, this is one of the most shrewd attempts because it was rooted in the law. It, what it could apply to his situation. And he said, no way. So the second wave of opposition is now over. And now we see the completion of the project in verse 15. Any questions? A little bit of a bunny trip. That was a great question, Glenn. Thank you. Any, everybody with me? Yes. Okay, it's time for me you know, to... Just a comment that uh, after going through these trials and attempts to derail uh, God's will in his life, uh, he, he finishes. And I think that's a good thing to think about mm-hmm. is that God is faithful in the end. That's right. To the end. To faithful the end. to the end. Yep, that's right. All right, let's read. This is uh, it's kind of exciting, these verses uh, at, at the end. So the wall was finished. I mean, that, you know, it's like, that's almost like, <laughs> what a letdown. So the wall's finished, you know. Now it's over. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, uh, that's August, September, in 52 days. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. That's, that's, that's a remarkable statement of God's faithfulness. And all the enemies heard of it. All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their esteem. It's a very important sentence. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. What is Tobiah, the Ammonite, Sanballat, the Samaritan, Geshem, the Arab, what are they all saying? This bears evidence of the supernatural. This bears evidence of the work of their God. There's no other explanation. Continuing, verse 17, Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Johanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Now, I apologize all those names. They're very difficult but what is verse 18 saying? There had been a marriage of a Jewish boy to a girl that was the daughter tied to Tobiah. There had been an alliance, maybe when you I say alliance, you're going to think of NATO or something like that. But it had been an alliance based on a marriage. A Jewish Ammonite marriage. This is what Ezra 9, we didn't study the book of Ezra, 
this is what Ezra 9 and Ezra 10 spoke against. You Jewish families do not marry your children to Canaanites, to Ammonites, to Samaritans, to Arabs, etc. Don't do that. Well, one of the prominent families of Judah had done that. Verse 19, also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Again, trying to intimidate, to make, get Nehemiah into a situation where he would be afraid. There's even an alliance against me. But it didn't work. So the work is done. Now the threats aren't over. We're going to see some other things that happen a little bit later in the book. But chapter 7, we're going to cover chapter 7 in about three minutes. <laughs> because if you take a look at chapter 7, it's just, particularly through verse uh, 64, it's just lists of names and names. and I'm not going to go through all of those. But I would like to read the beginning of it. Prior to that, might be a bunny trail. Um, so how do we deal today with that, I don't know if it would have been pragmatism, but don't marry outside of us. Is that because they were chosen, and so they shouldn't marry outside of the chosen people? Or were they prejudiced against their neighbors? Or was it just... How you did that? Well, uh, you're, you're asking two questions. Yeah. The, the first, second question I answer first. The second question is the historical nature and context of, of what Ezra and Nehemiah are dealing with at this point. Um, you have to remember something. It's quite important that the Messiah is going to come through the Jews. And so to preserve, to preserve the line is really important. And to have the intermarrying of all the different groups around uh, could challenge that. Now, God's not going to let that happen, but I mean that's part of it. But and, they were. I mean, when was it Moab, Moaz married? Yeah, Ruth was a Moabite. Yes, she was a Moabite. That's yes, where Jesus came from. Yes, that, that's right. And uh, Rahab was a Canaanite in Jericho, and so on. But I'm, I'm trying. That's the big macro picture as part. And the second second level of that is they are God's chosen people. For the very specific purpose, they are in Judah and now in Jerusalem to fulfill the Abrahamic covenantal promises that God made in Genesis 12-7. And so that, that's part of it. This isn't a covenantal promise to the Ammonites. This is a covenantal promise to you, the Jewish people. And so for them to dilute that based on what apparently was a political or quasi-political alliance, that flies in the face of everything God wanted. And so it's, it's part of it. That's part of what's in back of all this. Um, they are doing this for the wrong reasons. You know, Rahab helped those two spies out, and God honored that, honored her faith, which is what it was. She's held up in Hebrews 11 as a woman of faith. And so therefore, she marries a, a, a Jewish man named Solomon, and he's in the line of, of Jesus. That's not what this is. This is a political alliance to thwart what Nehemiah is doing. Now, the first question you ask is, what's the guideline for the church in 2020? One, and it's in 2 Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked. Now, I have done, I don't even know how many. Uh, I don't do those anymore, but countless marriage ceremonies and premarital counseling. And the very, 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 very first thing I make sure I understand is, do they both know the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior? I'm going to be very blunt with you. I will not knowingly, I will not knowingly do a wedding where the, the, the husband, the future husband and wife are not believers. I have done weddings where they're both not believers. Because my, my goal is to help them see and understand how God looks at marriage. And it is really, really important for you to come to know Christ. I done it. But I will not knowingly marry in an equally yoked situation. And so, and, and the Apostle Paul talks about that, and it, it lays out some of the, the, the scriptures then lay out some of the, the results of that. It can, be, it can be a very difficult marriage then, because you're not united in the most important issue of life. What do you do with Jesus? Does that answer your question then? 
Jim, I have a question about this verse you're going to read, or you're going to go right through. In the beginning of the verse, it talks about the people that they could prove where they came from. And That's they, coming up. Yeah. And they belonged. And at the end of that, is, there's some other people that couldn't prove where they came from, but they got to live there also, yeah. and I understand that. Yeah. I was just wondering about if you could explain that last part when you get to When that. I get to that, would be all right, because I, I, I do want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's right. Yep, that's right. That's very insightful. You read ahead. You study. That's really good. Wow. All right. Let's move into Chapter 7. The wall is done. Now, now what's the issue? The city's secure. The temple's protected. Jerusalem is now um, a secure city with a, a fortified wall around it and so on. Now the issue for Nehemiah, the governor of Yehud, the province, part of the Persian Empire, I've got to get Jews to live in the city. Very few people live here. So I've got to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. So the first few verses of chapter 7 is he organizes the leadership of the na- I shouldn't say of the nation, That's because they're really not a nation, they're a province, but organizes the Jews that are living in Yehu. Now when the wall had been built, I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed. These, these are all officials, gatekeepers, singers, Levites. These are all officials either connected to or serving the priesthood for purposes of worship. Guarding the city, that's now settled. The wall's been built. Now, the reestablishment of the worship of God in the temple. A secure, guarded, protected city now with, without any fear, without any concern of enemies destroying the city, they can worship the Lord. That's the whole purpose of this. And so Nehemiah is now organizing the worshipful structures. Does that make sense when I say it that way? Uh, the, the organizing what is needed to accomplish the worship that's in the temple. Gatekeepers, singers, and Levites. And I gave my brother Hananiah, and Hananiah the governor of the castle, charger of Jerusalem. For he... That he would refer to Hananiah, the governor of the castle. This is a citadel in Jerusalem. A more, fa- a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. That's a wonderful way to characterize Hananiah, isn't it? He was a man of integrity. Here is another important quality of leaders. Choose people of integrity. Don't just fill slots. You have lots of openings in your administrative team or in a church on your elder board or deacon board or any kind of scenario you can possibly imagine. I say, I, this is really important. Don't just fill a slot. Make sure you're putting in that position the right person. And number one is a person of integrity. If you look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, that's where you see the qualifications for spiritual leadership in the local church. If you would summarize, because there's quite a few character traits in each one, First uh, Timothy 3, Titus 1, it's integrity. This is a person of integrity. The little phrase Paul uses at the beginning of both those passages is, he should be above reproach. And so Nehemiah chooses this person and the way he characterized a more faithful, God-free man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while there is still guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their homes. Let me stop there. He's speaking here particularly to the gatekeepers. They're the first group that are mentioned there in verse 1. These are the people that are going to oversee the opening and the shutting of the gates that had just been built. The opening and shutting of the gates of Jerusalem. Got to organize that. Because we're not going to have our doors open 24-7. Because our enemies will take advantage. That's the reason you build the wall in the first place. So he's just organizing this. 
And he says, the city was wide and large, but the people went in it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Now, verse 4 is the transitional verse to the rest of chapter 6. We've got to populate the city. Hardly anybody lives in here. So this is what Nehemiah does in the remaining parts. Well, not quite, but a major part of this chapter. What time is it here? Okay, we're in good shape. Then God put in my heart to assemble the nobles and officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found written in it. And what verse 8, 6 is, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 6 is, all the way through verse 65, is he's reproducing the list that is in Ezra chapter 2. He's reproducing that list. Now, there are a few little differences, but they're not that important for us to know. So, I mean, what's going on? What's Nehemiah doing? He desires to settle the city of Jerusalem with Jews of pure descent. We are God's chosen people. God has promised us this land all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12, 7. This is not to be populated. Now, this is the city. It's not every other place in Yehud, where there has been some intermarriage, but this is the key city. And the only way to validate that is go to the genealogy in the list of the nearly 50,000 people that Ezra brought back. And that is recorded for us in the book of Esther. Is that uh, book of Ezra. Hard for the Pharisees to, when, in, when Jesus was saying, or, you know, saying who he was, that was what one of the, he would go back to this book almost, Nehemiah, and just say, we don't know where you came from, Jesus, when they're keeping such a good record right here, of where everybody came from. Yes. So that might have been one of their problems. Well, yeah, there's a lot more going on there in that comment they were making to Jesus. But uh, what they were really saying to him, okay, uh, we understand who you're claiming, now prove it. Show us the genealogy of who you really are. Well, at one level of who he is, well, my genealogy goes all the way back to God the Father in heaven. And I have no beginning. You know, that, he's not going to answer that way necessarily. He's been proving it. So, um, but the genealogies of Jesus are very important in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. And both of those genealogies are to make and, and to validate one claim. Jesus Christ has the right to claim the throne of David. He has that right. And those genealogies prove that. And so that was a very, very important text, uh, both of those actually, a very important text for a Jew in the first century to see that. And if they're objective and intellectually honest, yes, he does have the right to claim that. But of course, there's so much more involved in that. But genealogies, genealogies are very, very important in scriptures. Because you have... You have that in Genesis, and you have that in Chronicles. and so they're, they're, they're always the cure for insomnia. If you have trouble sleeping, start reading these, you know, because you don't know who these people are for the most part, and they're just incredible names. But there are two things to always remember about those. Number one, individual people are really important to God because they're named in the Bible. You can see them in heaven. But the other thing is God is very much into proving what he says he's going to do. And one of the validating points, in, in this case of Jesus, is a genealogy. A genealogy proves this. He has the right to claim the throne of David. Yeah, he does. All right, let's get to Woody's question. What time is it? Do we have time? Well, we'll see, Woody. I'm going to try. Okay. I'm in verse 66 now. It's all right that I don't read all those, isn't it? I mean, yes. okay. The whole assembly together. So he's just reviewed that genealogy that comes from Ezra. Was 42,360, verse 67, plus besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, 7, and they had 245 singers, male and female. And if you go back to Ezra and the account, you see these various groups 
are also mentioned, including the singers who are going to lead in worship. So you put those numbers together, you have grand total of 49,942. They have the right, their descendants, to settle in Jerusalem. Now he also adds their horses were 736, their mules 245, camels 435, and donkeys 6,720. Donkeys were the main work animals of the ancient world. Verse 70. Now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor, now, in other giving, meaning they're giving an offering to the work of, 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 of the wall plus the temple and all those things. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, um, a totally unfamiliar currency to you, but that's about a, a, a derrick is about a quarter of an ounce of gold. Or you can do the math on that. 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 50 minas of silver. A mina is about a little over a pound of silver. So again, do the math. You can see that's a significant amount. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,200 minas of silver. And I'll, again, these are the next group of leaders. And then the rest of the people, verse 72, gave was 20,000 derricks, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. These would be the priests who would oversee the, the, the worship that is uh, in, going to be occurring in the temple. Now, when it says they gave those garments, it probably indicates that they made those garments or they brought some of those garments with them from Babylon. It's a little hard to understand what that means, but they, they either made or gave the resources to make the priest garments because that's such an important part of worship. Yeah. And they did that, they gave that to whom? The, the to Nehemiah. It, to Nehemiah. Well, we went to the treasury. Oh, okay. uh, he's the governor of the province. So again, the treasury to fund the the setting up of the official worship in the temple. Okay. It may, and this is there's, there's some discussion about this too, Woody. It may also have been money that went to getting some of the materials to complete the building of the wall. Okay. Because I mean, just if you just do the math real briefly, I mean, you're talking about a significant amount. Of money here. These are significant gifts when you add them all up. It's impossible to give a modern, it really is a modern equivalent of this, but you're talking about a very significant. So you have people that not only did the work to rebuild the wall, you have the various layers of society giving to the project and in, in, the, in the temple. Where did, where did those funds come from? How did that money, how was that money generated? Well, old money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, there are uh, there are a couple things here. That's a great question, but well, my wife always says, "Why are you worried about the class not finishing what you want to finish? You're not final exams or anything." So, um, remember that many of the people who lived during the exile those seventy years, Jeremiah said to them. Plant your crops, do your work, because the Babylonians and the Persians followed up. They allowed them to live and do their work, and they were given land. Someone got in merchants. So they had money, Fred. They had resources from what they did in Babylon and then early in the Persian Empire. So they brought that with them. Because when you go back and read the book of Esther, Cyrus and, and, and then Darius and then Xerxes, they were some of the Persian kings, Artaxerxes, allowed them to take their wealth with them, allowed them to take their resources with them, allowed them to take their animals with them. Those animals that are listed there in verse 68 and so on, they came from Persia. And so, I mean, this is they brought this from the, the exile period. Secondly, many of them, when they came back to Yehud and, and resettled, they plant their crops, they start to go back into business, so to speak. And so th that becomes also can generate some income and so on. So I was coming of a variety of different sources. And when you look at those upper levels of the echelon, like the governor and so on, they are people who, just because of who they are, they have some wealth. And Nehemiah is just recording, from all segments of society, people are giving. And he's just recording that for us. And that's, that's kind of important. So 
This is a good passage to use when you start a capital campaign, by the way. I'm just kidding. I think so. Yeah, I don't think this is uh, this is Nehemiah. I think he's referring to him, Hananiah. That's correct. Good, good, it's a good comment. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. The work is done. So now they go back. And when the seventh month, that's Tishri, that would be October 445 B.C., the people of Israel were in their towns. Temple secure. The walls built. Temple sacrifices have re Uh, been reinstituted. The priests have been reinstituted. Everything is needing to work the way it's supposed to work. But chapter 8 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Because chapter 8 details for us. These people are no longer people of the law. These are people of the book. Chapter 8 one of the greatest revivals recorded in the Bible. And what you're going to see, and I want to talk about chapter 8 in terms of three segments. God speaks to their intellect. Then God stirs their emotions, which results in their obedience. And you have, and we're almost out of time today, but what you have at the beginning of chapter 8, Nehemiah is going to stand on a platform at the west gate. It's the southwest corner of the city of David. He's going to stand on a huge platform and he's going to read. He's going to read the Torah to the people. And they're going to stand for six hours a day and hear him read. And then the Levites are going to circulate among the people and answer their questions, interpret anything they're not quite clear on. And it's an ama- it is an amazing thing to try to envision what that would have looked like. So they've done the work God wants them to do, but God's not done with them yet. God now wants to pierce their heart with the truth of his word. And they now, these exiles, become people of the book. And the reason I say it that way is because the next 400 years, I'm, you know, I'm sort of stretching a little bit, but as we're getting near the end of the Old Testament is almost over now. With the rebuilding of the wall and the inhabiting of Jerusalem and so on, the Old Testament is almost over. And we're about ready to enter that 400 years of silence till Jesus shows up. And so they are now the people of the book. And the Hasidim and others are going to be, be constantly teaching the people, stay loyal to the word of God. Stay loyal to what God has said. Because if you don't, God's going to send you into exile again. And those Hasidim who are driving this home again and again and again, these become the Pharisees. So 400 years later, the Pharisees are the conservative people of the book. But tragically, by the time of Jesus, that had deteriorated into a legalistic, rigidly legalistic interpretation of the book. And that's what Jesus challenges. So what's happening in chapter 8 is going to shift the focus of these exiles from just the sacrifices and just going to people of the book. The word of God is important to us. We want to know the Word of God. We want to obey the Word of God. So God is going to address their intellect. God is going to address their emotions. And the result is going to be their unimaginable, stunning obedience to the Lord. Chapter is a great chapter. Don't miss next week. God is going to hold you accountable if you choose to miss next week. No, I'm just kidding. But I want you to, it's really a great chapter. It's just a wonderful chapter to study. And Nehemiah is reading the word. The yes, word oh, absolutely. Yeah, we had read that earlier in the book. Absolutely, absolutely. And now Ezra, we haven't, I, I want to talk next week um, a little bit about, I want to talk a little bit about who Esther is. Not Esther, who Ezra is. And so uh, be, be ready for that. I'm going to give you a quick biography of Ezra, who he is, because he and Nezra, uh, Nehemiah are contemporaries. 
Ezra's a little older than Nehemiah, but they're contemporaries. And they're the great leaders of the exile community in Yehud, in Judah. It's an exciting. I hope you're enjoying this book as much as I'm enjoying this book. So um, be ready for next week. It's, it's a great chapter. So, And if you have to miss, um, I mean, I will forgive you. God, God won't, but I will. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I hope you'll be able to be here. It's a great chapter. So let me pray here, and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Nehemiah. It's, um, you have privileged me with the opportunity to teach it. It's a book I love to teach. It teaches us so much about God-honored leadership, men of integrity, leaders who make a difference for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We're reading from the 21st century uh, some, and trying to de- uh, uncover some major principles. And I believe that's the right thing to do. We learn so much about a godly leader, the man of integrity, a man who always is always focusing on the mission, always focusing what God is asking him to do, whatever that nature of that might be, heading a company, a school, even being a leader in family, it's so important that we keep our eyes and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and that we don't allow fear to overcome our faith. We're men of faith. We're men of God who walk with you. And our faith is important. We have trust and confidence in you, Lord, not in our circumstances, but in you. Help us to be men of faith. Help us to grow in our faith and our trust and our confidence in you. Be with these men as they go now to their back to back to their offices, businesses, home, or wherever they're going. Protect them, and we look forward to regathering again next week as we study this monumental chapter, chapter eight. We look forward to that in Jesus' name. Amen.